This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault. A year ago, to celebrate my birthday, I decided to make an episode naming my favorite movie from every year that I was alive, the caveat being that I couldn't use the same director twice. I'm back this year with another fun birthday-themed episode about my favorite films of all time, and this time I'm going to name the best film from every decade from the 1920s through the recently completed 2010s. This gives me a nice, round, top 10 list. Instead of doing the list all on my own, I've decided to bring in some help. Joining me on the show today is Bill Antonio, host of the podcast Bad Gay Movies and the owner of the excellent movie review website, MyOldAddiction.com. Bill, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you for that very gracious introduction and uh, happy birthday, of course, to you. And thank, uh, you. thank you very much for pronouncing my name correctly without actually having me coach you before he- beforehand because... Everyone always needs uh, tips and everyone always gets it wrong. So <laughs> well, congratulations. I will, I will reveal a secret that I did uh, make sure to listen to a couple of uh, your episodes to make sure that I was pronouncing it right, oh, okay. right so that way oh, I could okay. hear your introduction. <laughs> but sometimes I'm actually sitting there like actually like Helen Keller style, like holding people's mouths with my hand, trying to get them to say <laughs> it right. And they still they still say it wrong. I don't know. There's something about all those vowels that trips people up. So you still get kudos from me. Oh, excellent. Um, (laughs) So talk about, we're going to name best movie from every decade, but Mm -hmm. I can never just narrow down my favorite movie to just one. So while in the intro, I claim that the show will be a nice round top 10 list. I kind (laughs) of lied. I actually have a runner up for every pick that I have, which is basically just an excuse to talk more about film, but I'm curious to know how you sort of approach making this list. Well, I just visited, revisited my top 10 lists from uh, my website because uh, it was either that or go through my spreadsheet of every movie I've ever seen. And that would have taken days. And I also decided to do a honorary mention with each choice from the decade because, you know, for me, coming up with a top 10 in some years is torture, let alone one. Per- this was really a really painful exercise for me. But I decided to focus on... um the films that I thought were the best, but also the films that I've watched the most, because sometimes you, you think a movie is the greatest thing you've ever seen, but it's not something you'll ever watch again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think for greatest, it should be somewhere in between those two things, basically. Yes. Even though when you're talking colloquially, the, the terms best and favorite sound like they might be the same, but I find mm-hmm. when you're talking about movies, they cannot be any more different. Yeah. I mean, if I find myself on a desert island with Citizen Kane, I will not be a happy person. You know, give me the Thomas Crown Affair and I'll be a much happier person. So, Well, I am super curious to hear what your picks are. So I figure let's get started right away. We're going to start from the 1920s, like I said, and go all the way up through the 20 teens, obviously, because I don't think we can name a best film of the decade with this two years so far into the 2020s. <laughs> that would be very futile. And I feel like I would be correcting myself in eight years anyways. Yeah. Uh, uh, so let's start with the 1920s. What is your honorary pick? All right. I'm also curious to know if we have any overlaps. So my honorary pick for the 1920s is um, Pandora's Box by Georg W. Pabst, starring Louise Brooks. Uh, this is a film I first saw on the big screen, which is the best way to see um, silent movies, particularly from the late 20s, because that's sort of the period at which the art form really, really reached its zenith. And then got ruined by sound for a few years before it, it came back in, in full force in the thirties. Um, Pandora's box is a really, really sexy movie and it's a really dangerous movie. And um, even in the decades following it, you rarely have a, a female character who's so 
complex and fascinating and problematic. And um, she is punished for it in the narrative, but at the same time, you can tell that the, the filmmaker admires her for everything that makes her complicated and selfish and gorgeous and all that stuff. I just, I think it's a dazzling movie. I'm actually not familiar with that one at all. Uh, Great. So that's going to be one I have to add to my list. But uh, what mm-hmm. is your what is your favorite movie then from the 1920s if it's not Pandora's Box? <laughs> my favorite movie from the 1920s. It was actually a really it was a really hard choice even for this decade, um, especially because I have been watching way more silent movies in the last few years. Um, but my favorite is The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Theodore the, uh, Theodore Dreyer. Um, he revolutionized the close up with this movie in in that people feel that. Obviously, it existed. D.W. Griffith had basically made it come into being in in um, in the Birth of a Nation. But people feel that Joan of Arc is the movie that really uh, pushes forward the use of the close up in film, and most of it is in close ups. And it is Joan of Arc's trial, um, and the acting is so passionate. Her performance, uh, Falconetti's performance, is so so moving in the lead. Uh, it's a film you can't help but be overwhelmed by when you watch it. I am I am a terrible cinephile that I have also not seen that one, even though I know I really do need to see it. Dry I, I don't think you're a terrible cinephile. I think you're um, I think you're magnificently younger than me is what you are. <laughs> and uh, I discovered these things, a lot of these things a lot later because I started going to the Cinematheque here in Toronto. I don't know if you guys have one out there on the West Coast. And uh, that's where I saw a lot of a lot of things that would not have come my way just from even renting movies where I was looking for old stuff. So, mm-hmm. no, yeah. that's fair. I, I I do love my old silent movies too, but I know mm-hmm. that uh, they can be sometimes a bit tricky to find, and yep. also just the, the act of of sitting down and watching the silent movies can sometimes seem like a bit of a chore, even if in the end they aren't. It, it truly, uh, it does seem that way. I still, I even myself who watches movies nonstop still find that I have a bit of a block there and then I get over it. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps that in the last mm, decade or so, maybe more, there's been, a, there's, there's just been so much more of an effort placed in, um, making these films look as good as possible. You know, for a long time, they were always presented at the wrong frame rate in really, really bad quality prints. And, um, people have really gone back and made sure that they are as vibrant as possible. And then we do have people who make an effort to screen them on big screens. Um, in Toronto, we do, I'm sure that they do elsewhere. And so that also helps a lot because the further you go back in film history, the more you are watching movies that were really meant to be seen one way. And Mm -hmm. it's a really great benefit if you get to see them uh, on a big screen. No argument there. My honorable mention is the Buster Keaton film, The General. So Mm -hmm. this, this was his silent caper where it's, uh, he's put in charge of a train, but he's there to try to save the, the woman of his life away from uh, the man who's stolen her. And really you're watching this movie for the stunts. You watch this movie today and you still are baffled at how he managed to pull off some of the tricks that he was doing. And the fact that he was putting his life on the line every single day of his career. And it still looks better than anything Tom Cruise could ever hope to do (laughs) really says a lot. It's very true. Um, this this movie made uh, my shortlist before I finally came down to what I was going to choose. And um, I think it's brilliant. I, I haven't seen enough of Buster Keaton's features, but I've seen a few of them. And this is by far the greatest um, because of his stunts and also just like the editing and the excitement on the train and all. I mean, it's so it's very, very well done. Mm-hmm. And they actually, like, if I'm remembering correctly, bought a train just to completely crash it at the very end of the movie sure. as well and destroyed a bridge. 
Yeah. Fantastic. Well, this is at the height of his popularity. He's a huge star at this point. This is when he actually filmed all of his dialogue scenes in three different languages every day because they were making sure to have, you know, prints for the whole world market. Like he, this was Buster Keaton at the height of his popularity. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I think if anyone has a, a block with watching silent films, this is a perfect introduction. It's something that you can also watch with kids. It's just a really crowd-pleasing type of movie and one that mm-hmm. you can't help but be laughing the whole way through, but also feel the emotional connection that Buster Keaton was, I think, superior than his contemporaries of Charlie Chaplin and Harry, Harry Lloyd at doing that as well, just because of his very uh, expressive face. Yeah, the face is fantastic. Mm-hmm. But my actual pick is the 1920 German expressionist horror film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I can't <laughs> remember the, the first time I watched this, but this is a movie that still, even today, you watch and you cannot help but see how striking the visuals are. The way the set is constructed, it's it's like a an old creaky weathered tree where everything twists and turns and there's shadows painted on the walls and on the floor and you're watching it. And none of it makes sense in this sort of style. But then you also get this very interesting tale of what is a, a sort of a, a proto-zombie, what they call a sonambulist, where he's a sleepwalker who kills people in his sleep. And it's just a very interesting sort of story. And then you find out where this, by the end, it might not even be real. It might all just be yeah. in the heroine's head and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's just a fantastic one. And also some very interesting color going on where they were tinting the film as well, which yeah. I really appreciate it. Yeah, believe it or not, I didn't see this movie for the first time until less than a year ago. Um, cause I did a column on my, on that shelf.com about, um, early German expressionism, the, the collection on the Criterion channel. Mm-hmm. And I had read everything that there was to read about this movie. You know, if you ever study film, people mention it all the time because it's considered like the birth of expressionism. Um, but I just never gotten around to actually watching it other than a few clips. So I was quite blown away by it as well. I mean, visually, it's just one of the most incredible things you'll ever see. Absolutely. You also have Conrad Veidt at, in his like young Twinkie days, you know, like for those of us who know him <laughs> as a, a villain in movies like Casablanca, you know, to see him so young and dewy is such a, a different experience. Mm-hmm. And he's also the the main inspiration behind the Joker character from his film, The Man Who Laughs. So yes, which is he's also really a, good. a very yeah. important person in the history of, of cinema. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, I think we should move on to the next decade when we Great. start getting into sound. What do you have for your 1930s honorable mention? I have uh, the 1936 screwball comedy classic, My Man Godfrey. This is one of my absolute favorite movies of all time. I think this is Carol Lombard's most incredible performance and one of the biggest Oscar robs in, in history that she didn't win Best Actress because comedy just never gets its due. And um, it's also, I mean, many of the screwball comedies in the 30s had a lot to say about um, social politics in the Depression era. And this one is definitely no exception. And it's also really sexy. And it's got great Art Deco style. And it's just so damn funny. That's, uh, once again, another pick that I have not seen. You're, you're oh. really putting me to shame here. No, not at all. It's uh, it's <laughs> it, great. Then I'm I'm really happy to like uh, spread the gospel. If you haven't seen it, you it's an absolute must. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. another one of those types of movies that you hear a lot about. That I, I definitely just need to sit down and, and watch. Mm-hmm. What was your your actual pick then? My actual pick is um, a, a film that hopefully a lot of people know. I, I, I discovered it late night on television one night, and I'm so happy I watched it because I've watched it a million times since. And it's a French movie called La Talente by Jean Vigo. 
Um, he only made this one film before he died of TB. It's his, uh, he made, sorry, I should say he only made this one feature. He made uh, three shorts before it. And um, he was this very radical political filmmaker who agreed to make this romance uh, because he was just told it was a good idea for his career. And it ended up being the thing he's best remembered for uh, simply about um, a, a couple who live on a barge uh, that, um, and the, ex- the ex- experiences that they go on and the sexy chemistry between them. And it's just images that feel like they come straight out of a dream. Um, the lead female is played by Dita Parlow, who's probably most famous for her role in Grand Illusion. She's also famous for the fact that Madonna named her character in her sex book, Dita, after Dita Parlow's performance in this movie. <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a great little factoid. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, for me, my, my runner-up is one that I feel isn't really talked about a lot, despite the fact that it's a Best Picture winner, and that's You Can't Take It With You, the Frank Capra oh. film. Nice. Where... Most people prefer It's a Wonderful Life or have only seen that. Mm-hmm. I actually think he does a better job with a somewhat similar, I want to say almost socialist take uh, on life with mm-hmm. You Can't Take It With You about this man who comes from a very rich family and he gets engaged to a woman who, in their eyes, is very low class. And basically the, the title is, you know, you can collect all this money and power and stuff like that, but you can't take it with you when you die. So what's the point if you can't help your fellow man, that sort of thing. And, and it just was a movie that really sort of resonated with me and not really something you, you saw a lot from mainstream films back in that era. And it stars James Stewart as he is in it's a wonderful life as well, but it also has some, some really great performances by people like Lionel Barrymore and Gene Mm -hmm. Arthur. Uh, So I, I'm a big fan of this one. Is this one that you'd seen? Yes, I haven't seen it since I was um, a teenager, I think, when I first started uh, getting into quote-unquote old movies. Well, it's from the 30s. I guess it's an old movie either way. I wasn't <laughs> born back then. Um, but uh, And I haven't seen it in a long time. I, I've never been a huge fan of It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and I think, and I do remember, you, can, uh, you can't take it with you rather well, in that it's more cynical in its uh, take on... Um, mm-hmm you know, again, social politics, uh, particularly because of the play that it's based on, you know, all these thirties movies are based on plays by guys who would later be uh, brought up by the HUAC as communists. So you can see their ideology already brewing in their, in the scripts that um, in the thirties films, even though they try to soften the politics from the original plays, but it's still there. So. Yeah. And this is one where I think that they did a a fairly good job of not really softening it. Most of the time when you, when you had these future blackballed writers, their politics were so subversive in the point where you could almost not really notice them if you weren't looking for them. Whereas this movie, I think really does wear its politics on its sleeve. Yeah. It helps that America also wasn't quite as paranoid in the late thirties as they would be later. I mean, Americans, saw Russians as a friendly ally at the beginning of the war, right? So mm-hmm. um, that all changes much later. But my actual pick is the 1931 thriller from Fritz Lang called M. Mm-hmm. This was one of my first introductions to, to German cinema, to world cinema, and it just absolutely sort of blew my mind. You know, throughout the this movie, they whistle in the Hall of the Mountain King, which has become my favorite classical composition due mostly to this and also used in uh, in a movie in the social network as well and in countless mm-hmm. other movies. But uh, yeah, it, this is a, a 
dark movie. This is uh, about a man who kidnaps and murders children, but it's presented in, in a way where you almost sympathize with the killer himself, who's played by the excellent Peter Lorre back in yeah. his native Germany before he transitioned over to Hollywood as he was escaping the Nazis. But wow, is this movie ever dark? And it concludes with a, a fantastic mob courtroom scene basically where everyone is ready to kill him and he just breaks down in tears admitting that he can't help it and even today i don't think you can make a movie like that where this idea of people can't help what they are psychologically wired for even if it is doing something as despicable as murdering children i I, like i'm i'm shocked that this movie got made and released Uh, Absolutely. I think it's an incredible film. It's a movie that sort of exists beyond the limits of my imagination because every time I see it, it seems like a completely different film to me. And there's Mm. different things that I learn about it every time I watch it. And, um, and then one of the most incredible things about it is how modern it feels. You know, uh, it does speak directly to, I think because it speaks directly to human nature. That's why it's applicable to all generations. And the ending in particular, as you mentioned, the sort of kangaroo court that these people create. It questions the wisdom of mob justice, which is something that um, we don't question quite enough, you know, in the way that now everybody gets to have an opinion online. And I don't mean to sound like like an old fuddy-duddy when I say that, because I know that there are some really great things that can come out of that. But there are some bad things that can come out of that, too. And I think this is what this film is uh, examining in that it does not exonerate the bad guy for these terrible things he does. But it wonders um it wonders if we should all be allowed to sort of indulge our our emotional need in dealing with him this is an absolutely fantastic one and one that is just so easy to sit down and just be so uh, engrossed by because yeah. it, the, it's it's such a fast-paced film where you can't you can't even catch your breath because there's so much going on all the time all right yeah. so let's move on to the 1940s what was your honorable mention for that my honorable mention is also a Best Picture winner. I have never been able to get enough of Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca from 1940. This is, of course, his first Hollywood movie. Um, uh, when he first came over from England under the aegis of David Oselznik, and um, he soon grew to hate that partnership, and he never saw any of his films under Selznick as being truly his own. Um, and I don't think he ever gave Rebecca the the due that it deserved because it is more of a soap opera than most of his, uh, you know, sharper suspense films are. But the storytelling is incredible. I mean, it's based on one of the most incredible novels you'll ever read. It's an absolute page turner. And then they bring it to life so, so beautifully, uh, further proven by how terrible Ben Wheatley's remake was uh, last year, which was, <laughs> you know, really, really quite dull. And um, I can't get enough of Joan Fontaine's performance in this movie. I think she captures that delicacy and um insecurity without being annoying uh which is incredible and then you know the lesbian undertones with joan Mm -hmm. um what's her name joan and i can't remember her name now uh her character judith anderson her character and um the photography by george barnes and uh it's just it's so atmospheric and i don't know i i I just love this movie and i i've never grown tired of it i've watched it unknown numbers of times since i was a kid I love that movie. That mm-hmm. was, I, I could not decide to make that my runner up or not. So that's probably my number three one. Uh, my, my favorite memory of that was when Guillermo del Toro was in town in Toronto and he hosted a, a gothic noir session at uh, the Tiff Bell Lightbox. And mm-hmm. so he, he presented Rebecca and then did a and a afterwards about why he loves gothic romance and yeah. just such a fantastic experience. Yeah. He's very much into the, you know, he talks about, um, 
the mysteries of Udolpho and the castle of Otranto, those two really classic Gothic English novels as being major influences on him. And you can see that in his movie Crimson Peak. Um, he actually lives in Toronto, so he wasn't uh, visiting for that um, for that uh, presentation. Well, what was your uh, final pick for this decade then? My final pick is uh, one of my all-time top 10 films of all time. Another one that I have watched billions of times and will never get tired of, and that's uh, Black Narcissus by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger. This is... Uh, a 1947 film um, made very early in Deborah Carr's career. She plays a sister superior uh, of a group of Anglican nuns who are instructed to move to a convent in a remote mountain village in India. It's actually a pleasure palace of an old, um, like of a prince of long ago that's been converted into a convent. And they bring their very nunly, confident, cheerful ways, thinking that they will save all these people. And they end up basically being undone by the mysteries of the East. Um, and you have nuns going mad with sexual frustration and um, nuns uh, falling into deep depressions over uh, memories that they suddenly are flashing back to that they've repressed for so long. It's really incredible that this movie is made in 1947. It's made in Britain, which is why uh, it got made because no studio would allow it. And unsurprisingly was heavily edited when it was released in America because the Catholic uh, church did not appreciate that the main character had flashbacks to her youth. They wanted people to think that nuns are just born that way. Um, <laughs> so, and then it's one of the most incredibly beautifully filmed movies of all time. It's uh, Jack Cardiff who shot it and won a very, very, very deserved Oscar for it. And it's sort of the definition of his career. The, the way that they get so much great shadows out of this bright, colorful photography is incredible. And it's all shot in um, in England at Pinewood Studios with matte paintings, but you really feel like you're on top of the mountains in the Himalayas. It's it's amazing. Wow. Yeah, I mostly know that movie as it being the, the horny nun movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's incredible. <laughs> I have seen it. Um, you know, I first rented it on video cassette from the library when I was a teenager, and then I couldn't find it again because then they got rid of video cassettes. Uh, but then Criterion eventually released it. And then I, uh, you know, I've seen it on the big screen as well. It's just magnificent. Well, yes, I, I look forward to checking that one out as well. I'm glad I've at least seen one of your movies so far. <laughs> but uh, for me, my honorable mention should have been Rebecca. And then we would have had that in common. Instead, mm -hmm. I'm going with another coded lesbian film. And that is The Uninvited Oh. I'm not too sure if you're familiar with that one. Oh, very. Uh, yeah. And also one that would have made my shortlist. I love this movie very much. And it, it, by the time you get to the, and I will let you speak, but by the time you get to the coded lesbian part of it, that's, that's the part that reminds me the most of Rebecca, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This yeah. was a film that I hadn't heard of and I'm, I'm, it's tough for me to watch horror movies. I'm, I'm easily scared. I'm a bit of a chicken, but I am obsessed with classic horror films, especially mm -hmm. from the thirties to fifties. I think those are the best ones ever made. And, and ghosts have always been a bit of a, a, a tricky subject for me. That's the one thing that I, I really can't get on board with because this, it's supernatural. You can't, you can't explain it away or something like that, as opposed right. to vampires or zombies or whatever it might be. Ghosts are just, they're spirits, and I can't get over that. But this film is about a brother and sister who move into this beautiful, gorgeous, old seaside home, and they're wondering why they're able to get it for such a deal. But the reality is it's haunted, and 
so there's this woman who uh, literally is just crying. Her ghost is crying, and she can't find peace, and she's just wailing. She's not a violent ghost. She's not, for the most part, throwing things around. She does do a little bit of destruction when she's disturbed, but it's not your typical ghost story. It's it's so much more of a, of a romantic story, and I just love the the use of the ghost not being there, the way they film that, the way doors closing, candles blowing out, things blowing in the wind, things like that, that became the prototype for ghost stories going forward mm-hmm. are all here on the page. And I loved it. And if you want to speak more to the coded lesbian part of it, I, I would really appreciate that. Oh, it's not something that I've given much thought to. So I don't know that there's much I can contribute on that front, but there is definitely a suggestion in the fact that when they are investigating the mystery as to who this ghost is, um, they meet that psychologist or psychiatrist and psychiatrists are one of the few jobs that women are allowed to have in forties movies, uh, careers, I should say. Um, and she's presented, she's presented in a way that can be very easily interpreted as being a lesbian. And, and then she has this sort of obsession with the dead woman as well, that, uh, it would remind people of Rebecca and therefore, makes that suggestion. But then of course the movie just gets back to um, what it's really about, which is actually like the, the mother daughter story and, and mm-hmm. who's the mother and who's the stepmother and who's attacking whom. Um, the first yeah. time I saw this, my blood went cold. The first time you hear the crying at night, I, it was, I thought it was so scary. I was really shocked because I, I consider myself pretty impervious to that stuff, but it actually really freaked me out. <laughs> yeah, the, the the soundtrack and the use of music is, is so powerful in this, and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it gets dead quiet, and it's just this subtle, slow building up of a wailing, and then it's full force, and it seems like it's coming from every direction in the house after it starts of being in just one corner of, of a yeah. room, and it just spreads everywhere, and it's very overwhelming. Yeah. But my actual pick uh, goes for the 1940 film The Great Dictator. I previously oh. was talking about a Buster Keaton movie, and now I'm going to talk about a Charlie Chaplin movie. Very good a choice. A movie that he has... <laughs> I. I I usually don't like using this phrase, but the size of his balls to be able to make this movie yeah. in 1940, a year after World War II started, at a time where America wasn't involved in World War II at this point, and he is basically going out and explaining exactly what Hitler is doing, why it's wrong, why you need to care about it, why you need to care about your fellow man, all this yeah. sort of stuff. It's basically, uh, if anyone has either read or seen it, it's basically The Prince and the Pauper, where... <laughs> This fake Hitler, uh, who is known in the film as, um, I forget what, what it's like Hinkle uh, or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Hinkle. Yeah. That's what, that's what it is. Hinkle. And then he's also this regular poor person who is supposed to be Jewish. Basically, mm-hmm. uh, they look identical and somehow due to confusion because they look the same end of game switch. And he takes over Hinkle's position as leading the not quite German army. It's a lot of metaphors of, Obviously, we know what it all means, but that's what it is. And in the end, he gives this very impassioned speech of why you shouldn't be fighting and why we shouldn't be killing people and caring about those who are suffering and all that fantastic stuff that he does so well. But I think what does what's most interesting is, you know, a lot of the joke is Charlie Chaplin has a Hitler mustache. Well, it's actually the reverse. Hitler was such a fan of Charlie Chaplin that he has a Charlie Chaplin mustache. And the fact that he <laughs> his favorite actor and and performer basically makes a movie calling him out in the best way possible. In my opinion, I know it, a lot of the trivia about this movie is just how it infuriated Hitler so much. And and what better way to piss off that his favorite star was like lampooning him. Yeah. 
Yeah, what better way to piss off fascists than to to completely call them out this way? Yeah, and what's also interesting about this movie is the fact that like he talks about the character being hauled off to a concentration camp and many people who lived through that time will tell you, you know, we didn't know anything about this, you know, we didn't know anything about the this final solution until after the war we found out about it and it's like but it's interesting that Charlie Chaplin knew, you know, I don't know how often he was visiting Europe to find these things out or who he was talking to, but obviously some people knew because 1940 is very, very early. Um, you know, America's not going to be involved in the war for two years. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it's, it's a great delight. There's a fantastic dance sequence with a giant inflatable globe, Yes, which sounds out of place, but once you're watching it, <laughs> it, it makes you remember why you love someone like Charlie Chaplin. The fact yeah. that he's able to to blend this very physical comedy yeah. that was very different than Buster Keaton, obviously, but his own blend of physical comedy with this very serious social drama proves why he's one of the all-time greats. Without a doubt, yeah. And that that's the most famous image from the movie as well, I think. That clip mm-hmm. has been shared many times on Facebook, as has his speech as well. Yes, Yeah. yes. Yeah. All right, so now we're in the post-war era. What do you have for your 1950s runner-up? All right. Um, this was actually a tougher decade than I thought it would be, even though um, American cinema, I like, I prefer of the 40s and the 50s, but uh, I have to go for my runner up, which could be my number one, depending on the day, but my it would be Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, which was mm. uh, recently chosen as Sight and Sound's number one film of all time. And rightly so. Uh, this is another film that I will watch this movie any day that you ask me to put it on. It's my absolute favorite Hitchcock film. Um, just the aesthetics of it are so very pleasing to me. I think it's one of the most beautiful movies I've ever seen. And it's so psychologically complex. I love that it's not a hero and villain story. It's just about obsession. And, um, you know, not surprising it didn't work for people at the time. It was a huge bomb. There's a scene in uh, the movie Hitchcock where Anthony Hopkins is playing him lying in bed saying, oh my, you know, while he's making Psycho and he says, oh my God, what if I have another vertigo on my hands? You know, it wasn't (laughs) a movie that had a good reputation until much later. Um, But I think it's just perfectly, perfectly brilliant. I think it's James Stewart at his most interesting and Kim Novak at her most complex and commanding. And um, I don't know, I just, my love for this movie is is purely emotional. I don't even know if I can rationalize it all that well. I don't think you need to rationalize it. It's yeah. a fantastic film and, and it absolutely shows Hitchcock, who's arguably one of the greatest directors of all time, making what would probably be his all-time masterpiece. Yeah. What is your number one pick then? My number one pick is what I think is the greatest movie ever made um, and uh, it's Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story from 1953. Oh. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen any Ozu films. You probably have, especially if you've studied have, film. Yes. You haven't? Oh, okay. No, no, I have. Yes, I, oh, you I saw, have. Sorry. I've seen Tokyo Story, yes. Oh, you, okay, great. It. Great. Then I, yeah, I won't, uh, I'll be a little less condescending then. Um, so uh, <laughs> I, like many people, found that Ozu was a bit of a acquired taste. The first time I saw a Late Spring was the first movie of his I saw and I fell asleep. Um, and it wasn't until I just kept going, uh, Cinematheque Ontario did a whole retrospective of his movies. Um, and I went and I saw as many as I could and I just grew to fall very, very deeply, madly in love with him. There is a delicacy to the way he shows everything while still making it hit really, really deep. And I think Tokyo story is the film of his that hits the deepest. Um, it's the story of two elderly parents who live, um, like a nine hour train ride outside of Tokyo. And they decide to go to Tokyo to visit their children who are living and working there. And their kids 
are busy and basically are trying to find ways to sort of, you know, pass their parents off to somebody else because they can't really spend much time with them. And it ends up being the wife of their son who died in the war, who gives them the most amount of, um, of attention played by the ethereally wonderful Setsuko Hara, who just died recently at the age of 95. And, um, and, and it's, it's just about their experiences and by the time you get, every time I get to the end of the movie, I'm always a, a, a puddle on the floor. I'm such a sobbing mess. And particularly what I love about this movie is its humanity is the fact that the children, despite the fact that they're being kind of selfish, they're not treated as bad people. The movie understands that life is just complicated and difficult, which is something all of his movies understood. I just think he got everything the most right in this movie. And I think it's, I think it's something that uh, humanity should be proud of basically. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a few really heartbreaking sequences in this. I, I think of particular one when the parents get sent off to the vacation resort. Devastating. Because the kids don't know what else to do with them and, and they think that they'll enjoy being at a resort. And this older married couple just is not having any sort of fun whatsoever, despite the fact that everyone around them is having the time of their lives. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And the fact that that whole sequence is so beautiful too, you know, like they're by the sea and it looks so gorgeous, but they're also, they're not having a good time, but they're also making the most of it, you know, like they're not actually complaining and that's almost more heartbreaking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Well, I think the 50s was, in my opinion, probably the best decade for world cinema. Yes. Both of my picks are, are non-English films and the fact that also one of yours is, is a non-English film as well that mm-hmm. speaks to the power of it. And I'm going to continue the trend with it with another Japanese film, but mine is going to be Seven Samurai, mm-hmm. the Akira Kurosawa film. I only saw this for the first time a few years ago, mostly because of its reputation that it's you know one of the greatest films ever made especially from japan but also that it can be a bit dense and a little hard to get into at times and it's got a three-hour runtime, which can be very discouraging for for people the first time yeah but i watched it and i can't believe it took me so long to watch it this might be one of the best action films ever made mm-hmm. much like i was talking about the general with the the sequences in that the the fight sequences in this especially the final battle when they're in the rain and everything is muddy and disgusting and there's horses flying every which direction but kurosawa never lets you forget where characters are what the positions are for each one who's winning who is losing who's alive who is dead you can capture all of that despite the fact that there's so much chaos going around <laughs> yeah and it's also you know it's called seven samurai because there's seven main characters in this i don't think i've seen a movie with an ensemble cast like this where you get so much backstory both told and untold in a cast that size it's sure. it's phenomenal what kurosawa was able to do yeah, and it speaks to the star quality of Toshiro Mifune that he still makes manages to sort of rise above them all anyway. You know, he's so charismatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great movie. I mean, it is, I think it's actually almost four hours long. It's really long. And so yeah, yeah, it's, um, long. it's not one that you can easily throw on. But um, I have seen it about four times or something. I don't know. And it, it never really diminishes in my mind either. And it's, it's a movie that my mom watched the entire thing of. My mom who hates reading subtitles. She just had to find out that the villagers were going to be okay. And she sat there for four oh. hours watching the entire thing. <laughs> yeah, so that, that I'll never forget that. That always impressed me. Nice. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Well, my my number one pick from this decade, I said it was it was the decade of, of international cinema. And this one, I'm going all the way to France. And it's Rififi, 
the uh-huh. Jules Dassin uh, heist thriller. I love heist and noir films and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And this might be one of the best. I think, in my opinion, is the best I've ever seen. Just the way they have the the they have all the tropes. I love I love when movies have the tropes of a specific genre, but does it well, and it's not done in a condescending or a cheesy way. For sure. And, and this, they have you know the planning and the it's a perfect plan. Nothing can go wrong, and then <laughs> they get away with it all. And then one thing happens where one of the guys ends up spilling the beans to a woman he's trying to woo, and then she tells some other people, and then eventually the whole plan came crashing down, and everyone ends up dying basically. But it is just. The perfect action film, but what makes it great is what it's most famous for is there is a 30-minute, almost completely silent heist sequence where the alarm is tripped by noise when they're trying to get into this jewelry store. So they need to be as quiet as possible. There's no music. There's no dialogue. Every time they hit a rock and some dust tumbles, it's like the most intense moment you've ever watched. Your heart is beating out of your chest and you're actually worried that you as a viewer are making too much noise. That's how powerful this film is for me. It's incredible. I I think you you pretty much uh, summed it all up perfectly. I saw this movie again for the first time on the big screen, and so to watch that sequence for the first time in that uh, environment was really exciting. And then there's that um, there's like that car chase at the end, you know, where he's been shot, so you don't know if he's going to crash the car with the kid in it, and mm-hmm. the kid doesn't know he's having like the time of his life. And um, <laughs> my friend beside me almost had a heart attack and died during that scene. We were all <laughs> so, so very tense. And then um, I saw my aunt. My aunt was visiting us from Greece that summer. And uh, I met her, you know, downtown after we saw that film. And I said, oh, we just saw Rafifi. And she says, oh, my God, I saw that movie in 1955. And then she described the entire movie to me. Like, it made such an impression on her that she oh, remembered wow. the whole thing. Particularly, she's like, and then there's that half an hour sequence that's wordless and soundless and you know so yeah it's uh it was very 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 successful at its time it is the reason why heist movies became very popular afterwards mm-hmm. yeah i'm guessing no one was eating popcorn during that sequence when you saw it in theaters <laughs> probably not yeah I, I i wonder but yeah probably not and he um he won best director at the Cannes film festival for that and i'm gonna guess that a lot of it had to do with that sequence as well Okay, so now we're into the new Hollywood decade, which is the 1960s. Yeah. What is your honorary pick? Well, um, I mean, new Hollywood, I think, as being the late 60s. Uh, the early 60s to me is like the, for me, my favorite period of like European cinema in particular. I think the 60s is the golden age of Italian movies. Um, so one of my films will be European, but my runner-up is actually an American film with a very European bent, and it's the greatest Hitchcock movie that Hitchcock did not make, which is uh, Charade by Stanley Donen, <laughs> starring Audrey Hepburn and Cary Grant. Maybe this movie is not everyone's cup of tea. Maybe not everyone thinks this movie is greatness, but I have. N- it's an. It's also on my top ten of all time. I've never gotten enough of this movie. I think it's perfect from beginning to end. Um, she plays a woman who, um, whose husband, uh, has died. She comes home from vacation and finds that her husband's been murdered and that there are a bunch of guys who are looking for a stash of money that he apparently stole that he was supposed to share with them. And now they expect her to produce this money and they're going to kill her if she doesn't. And Cary Grant plays a character whose identity keeps changing because she never really knows exactly who he is because his story keeps changing and she doesn't know who to trust. And there's a lot of really scary, tense moments in this movie. There's also a lot of really, really great comedy, and it blends perfectly together. Uh, it's written by Peter Stone, who won an Oscar the year after this for a movie called Father Goose, which is not nearly as good as this film. This is what he should have won a writing Oscar for, because I think the script is perfect. 
And um, I think it's Audrey's finest moment. And uh, it's another movie that also, it looks so beautiful. It's that early 60s era of like um, uh, solid colors and bubble hats and uh, Pan Am bags and Paris looks lovely. And I just, I, I, I love this movie so, so very much. That's one where I like it, but I don't love it. I find the comedic aspects don't fully work for me. Interesting. Yeah, it's it's been quite a while. It's been probably about 15 plus years since I've seen it, so I probably do need to revisit it. But I, I do remember just thinking it was fine. Well, listen, I can handle people not having my opinion. I can handle it, but <laughs> I might browbeat you, browbeat you about it again later. I don't know. Well, for me, I am on polar opposites of this decade. My honorable mention is, is one that came at the very end during the new Hollywood era. And then my, my actual pick is one... It's still old Hollywood, but okay. uh, I'll, I'll start with my first one, which is Rosemary's Baby, oh, the nice. uh, Roman Polanski film, <laughs> uh, which I guess I should spit when I say that name. But unfortunately, this is an absolute masterpiece of yeah. a film, of a thriller, of a horror. I love how it just toys with you psychologically the mm-hmm. entire way, where you are exactly in the shoes of Mia Farrow's Rosemary's character, mm-hmm. where you don't know what's actually happening, what's not. Are you really losing your sanity? Are you being gaslit? What's happening? And then, of course, there's this, you know, the very famous um, pregnation scene, we'll call it, where it's it's done in such a psychedelic manner yeah. and it doesn't feel real and the devil pops up and you're like what the hell is going on and then you really do think it's a bad fever dream and you basically spend the rest of the movie wondering was that uh, all inside of her head or did that actually happen and yeah. you know I think spoiler alert by this point uh, yeah it really did happen <laughs> yeah yeah, this is one of my all-time favorite movies as well. I, I've never, I've never gotten sick of this film, and I've watched it many times since I was a teenager. It is uh, also very, very beautifully photographed, and I think Roman Blansky has made a few masterpieces in his time, but this is definitely the one that I love the most personally. And it's a movie that shouldn't get away with what it get away gets away with. It's such a silly story. Um, mm-hmm. the impregnation scene has like the, the big claw hands and the, you know, like it's, it seems so ridiculous, but because he does focus on the psychological aspect of it, particularly in the way that, um, she feels increasingly, uh, stifled in like, and, and claustrophobic in the, um, building and in the, just the city, he, you know, that scene in the, the phone booth is so terrifying for that reason. Um, mm-hmm. Polanski is the master of atmosphere. He can make something feel so so otherworldly in, in very, very subtle and undetectable ways. And this is a movie that really, really benefits a great deal from that. Mm -hmm. Well, my number one pick for this decade is going all the way back to 1960. And that is Billy Wilder's the apartment, (laughs) a movie that I believe is the greatest all time best picture winner, right? Which I know is a, is a very contentious thing to say to some people. No, I would have it in like my top three, if not the number one. So yeah. Excellent. I, I'm glad you agree with this. This is this is another movie, kind of like your your picture raid, where it really does a great job blending comedy and drama. Mm-hmm. It's often called a comedy, but about three quarters of this way through this movie, if you're still laughing at that point, you have some serious issues going on. Yeah, because this movie gets really dark really quickly once you get to the about the halfway point <laughs> where you're 
basically dealing with with suicide for the last half hour 45 minutes and, and talking about that aspect but yeah if anyone hasn't seen this it's about a man who is renting out his apartment to his superiors at work so that they can have sex with their mistresses yeah. and he's not even renting he's lending with it one out. of them yeah yes yeah. yes in order just to get ahead in his company in a way that he both wants to do but also doesn't want to do yeah. it's a very complicated film yeah. and in wilder you know apart from blending this pitch perfect script of of comedy and drama with some fantastic performances shoots the hell out of this movie the the, the way he shoots the offices that they mm-hmm. work in just rows and rows and rows of office drones is just so overpowering and and you just love all of his shots. Every shot in this movie, you can you can make like a poster of and be like, "This is art for sure." It's stunning, and it's also a really really smart summation of uh, the the sort of the America really expands economically after the war, and everyone thinks it's also great. And Billy Wilder really pinpoints what he's nervous about about it: the fact that the corporate culture is actually like working against you know people's humanity. Um, and, uh, he captures that beautifully and makes this movie that has the structure of a romantic comedy, but actually is sort of a bitter pill in a, in a candy coating. You know, he, he does get the girl at the end, but, uh, there's a lot of bumpiness along the way. And I think Shirley MacLaine is, you know, the greatest female performance of the sixties. I think that's one of the most amazing characters, even though you could say that she's sort of the birth of the manic pixie dream girl, but she's so much more than that, you know? (laughs) Um, I didn't do my number one, by the way, for the 1960s. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, you're what a terrible host one? and I'm leaving. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, I got so excited to talk about Rosemary's Baby in the Apartment. It's I, I quite about you. all right. It actually works out perfectly because my number one is also from 1960. I think 1960 is a really knockout year for movies from all around the world. You have like Never on Sunday and Psycho and The Apartment and La Ventura by Michelangelo Antonioni, which is something I came almost close to choosing because um, I think that's like my number three movie of all time. But I went with my number two movie of all time from 1960, even though it was released in the States in 1961. And that is Fellini's La Dolce Vita, which um, when it was released became the most successful foreign language film of all time and led to this decade in the 60s of Americans going to see foreign language films in record numbers that have never been, that had never been seen before and never been seen since. Mainly because these movies had a lot more sexuality in them than American Hollywood movies did. Um, and, and La Dolce Vita was definitely famous for being um, uh, risque that way, even though it's very, very tame by today's standards. And it is a three hour voyage through Rome, through the eyes of a press agent played by um, Marcello Mastroianni. And as, as he gives in more to loving, living this very sweet life, as the title calls it, sort of loses his soul. It's a movie that has a lot to say about sort of celebrity culture, celebrity obsession in a way that no one was talking about yet. And um, also about like, you know, real art versus um, uh, sort of promotion and glamour and and, uh, publicity. It's uh, stunning to look at. It's really, really dark and cynical. And for a lot of people, they really get tired of it by the end because it's very long. But I always feel like that's kind of the point is that you're supposed to feel his soullessness along with him. Um, and it's my absolute favorite Fellini film. And I, I just think it's, it's really, really incredible. And f- for, to me still feels very modern in many ways. Unfortunately, the only Fellini film I've seen is Knights of Cabiria. Oh, you're missing out. Yeah. I love Knights of Cabiria a lot. That's his greatest sort of early period film, but, um, Dolce Vita is my favorite eight and a half is a real, I mean, that's, that's a real, um, cinephile cornerstone and Satyricon is really great too. So yeah, definitely watch more of his stuff. You would definitely like it. 
Excellent. Well, I'll let you speak again. We're, we're now going into the 1970s, right. fully into the new Hollywood era. But what is, what is your runner up? Well, the 70s is when uh, American cinema really, really hits quite a fascinating stride. And in many ways, there's a lot better stuff coming out of the States than there is from uh, from the rest of the world, which is the opposite for me in the 60s. Um, and, um, my runner up is a movie that I think is just incredible. I love political thrillers. And one of my favorites is the China syndrome from 1979 by the late great James Bridges. This is a film, um, produced by Michael Douglas and co-starring him and starring Jane Fonda in one of my favorite performances of hers and Jack Lemmon, uh, winning a best actor at the Cannes film festival for this. And, um, she plays a sort of soft news reporter who's covering like new animals at the zoo, and then is sent on a routine um, assignment to cover the opening of a nuclear power plant and just happens to be there when what she believes is an, uh, an accident happens. And the um, powers that be try to cover it up and make it seem like everything's okay. But she decides to do some more digging and partly be- out of concern for you know the public interest and partly because it's going to be really great for her career as well. And uh, the movie is beautifully honest about both. And um, at the time was very much helped at the box office because the accident at Three Mile Island happened like two weeks after the movie opened and then the theaters were full. So um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's, uh, it's just one of the when people talk about the great American movies of the 70s, this is one of the ones that my mind goes to immediately. That's one where I've seen the last 30 minutes or so. Oh. I, I arrived to my in-law's house and they were watching it. And I was like, all right, well, I'll watch the rest of this movie with you guys. Don't know what's happening, but uh, I'll enjoy it. So <laughs> I've seen like, the, the final confrontation, basically. Yeah, no, I mean, good ending, but you really, you got to see the whole thing. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, then what is your number one pick then? My number one film is, uh, I should stop saying it. this is a real favorite of mine. I'm picking the best movie of the decade. <laughs> of course, it's a favorite of mine. Wow, you can it better see, be. Yeah, you can tell I don't do this a lot. Um, my favorite Robert Altman film is Nashville from 1975. This is him, you know, reaching the height of his uh, powers. He he first broke through with Mash in 1970, and is considered one of those really. He he's one of the directors that really defines the decade in terms of his sort of independent style and his um, experimental style as well. And he was famous for making movies with large casts where he would just throw people into situations and have them. Um, uh, you know, do whatever they wanted if they didn't want to follow the script because he was just really interested in personalities and and how they interacted. And Nashville for me is uh, my favorite of, of, of all of these experiments, maybe shortcuts and the player are better films, but I just really love this movie. Um, it's set in Nashville um, and uh, it's about the country music scene as sort of a microcosm for the uh, frictions between uh, liberal and conservative politics in America in the mid seventies. And the cast is amazing. Lily Tomlin is at her finest in this film. She doesn't have that many moments in it, but every time she's on screen, you cannot take your eyes away from her. She's so powerful. And Keith Carradine is at his absolute hottest in this movie as well. And you certainly can't take your eyes off of him and his perfect blonde hair. And everyone wrote their own songs and the soundtrack is killer. So um, it's just a movie that I love so much. So you're going to give me shit for this, much like how I only saw the the ending <laughs> of The China Syndrome. I've actually seen the first three quarters of Nashville oh. and didn't finish it. Oh. I, I loathe to, to not finish a movie. That is not me at all. But uh, <laughs> Well, it is very long. 15, it is, yes. About 15 years ago, I couldn't find it. I was very interested in watching this movie. I found it through some sketchy scre- streaming site. 
and was watching it. And then my computer ended up crashing with about 20 minutes or so left. And then I wasn't able to find it again. And I've never gone back oh. to rewatch it. So you haven't watched it. You need to like, no, start the process all over again because you know, it's on Criterion and, and you can watch it in the best possible circumstances. Mm-hmm. It's really incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So for me, I completely agree. I think the 70s is the decade of American cinema. They were putting out the best films. They they were setting the stage for for blockbusters, mm-hmm. but then also in their more adult films, they also had some great paranoid films. And, and my two picks kind of cover both of them. Oh. So my runner-up is uh, the original summer blockbuster, and that's Jaws. So I I adore this film. I, I love that Steven Spielberg had the brashness to take this very pulpy subject matter of a shark attacking uh, a local beach and how he basically has uh, a one man fighting the entire local government in order to shut the beach down (laughs) over the July 4th weekend. And they refuse to do so. But the way he uses his camera in this film is just absolutely phenomenal. Everything, you know, that he learned from watching movies like vertigo where, uh, Hitchcock invented the dolly zoom for that. He uses in this to to great effect, and that's actually contra zoom is a is another word for dolly zoom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's where the name came from because those are two of my all time favorite movies. And this is just a movie that's just so much fun to watch. This is this is a, the type of movie that you can put on anytime, much like something like Gosford Park, and just absolutely enjoy the 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 thrill ride that it is. Without a doubt, uh, there are two movies that sub- signify summer to me, and Jaws is one of them, and A League of Their Own is the other one. Uh, they just—they both <laughs> give me a summer feeling. I love how you can smell the air in Jaws. It's kind of why I, I sort of prefer the first half versus the Alone in the Boat second half, but I still think it's—I mean, I've had a deep, deep love affair with this movie since I was quite a small child. Um, it has always terrified me and always fascinated me. And I was never able to look away from it, even though it really scared me because I was always really scared of sharks from when I was a kid. Um, but at the same time, fascinated by them. So yeah, I mean, you, you can't go wrong with Jaws. I think it's, uh, one of the most perfect movies ever made. Mm-hmm. And then my, my actual pick from this decade is going in the paranoid direction, all the president's men oh. movie, very similar to, to China syndrome, as far as what the themes that it's going on with the distrust of government and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But the, the cover up of the, the Watergate scandal and the uncovering by the, the two reporters at the Washington post Woodward and Bernstein, this movie just sort of crackles with intensity and it shows reporters doing their job and what they need to do to do the job a movie very similar to spotlight where you just sort of sit there and watch people doing their jobs and what sounds like could be very boring work of them researching and knocking on doors and following up and not testing to see if rumors are true or not and all this sort of stuff going through court documents this movie has it all and i love it and Every time you rewatch it, you just get super invested right from the get-go. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, one of the most interesting choices for the Oscar for Best Art Direction is this movie because it's not a movie that you would associate with that kind of prestige. But they did recreate the Washington Post newsroom down to the last typewriter, so they definitely uh, mm-hmm. deserve that prize. Um, it's a movie where like every performance is a gem. Like I love Jane Alexander and Hal Holbrook as Deep Voice, uh, Deep Throat, and. Um, it is a really great movie. And, you know, it's interesting you compare it to Spotlight because I do remember that sort of coming up a lot when Spotlight came out. But Spotlight doesn't have the confidence that this movie has in that it it very rarely has any sort of like emotional climaxes. It has the guts to just be a procedural where they go from one clue to the next and never feels like it needs to have some kind of like emotional catharsis. 
And Spotlight is a movie that it's that's sort of not built into the script, but they sort of fake create them by having like moments where like Mark Ruffalo starts to scream. And mm-hmm. I really admired that. I recently watched All the President's Men again, and I just really admired how subtle it is and the fact that it just never it never feels like it, 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 it never seems to need your approval or to need to demand that you pay attention to it. It just has this, this confidence that makes you uh, just lock into everything that's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think Hoffman and Redford have such a, a simpatico energy yeah. where they contrast each other just enough, but are on the same page for the rest of it yeah. where it just works so well. Plus that flippy seventies hair. I mean, I can't get enough of looking at it, you know, it's so great. It's so mm-hmm. great. And no one ever looked better in clothes than Robert Redford. All right, so now we're moving on to the 1980s, uh, a decade that I'm not as fond of, but I still think I have a couple interesting picks, but I'm very curious to see what you have for yours. All right, well, it is a decade I'm fond of because it's the era that I grew up in, and it's the era in which I came to understand movies. It is the worst period for studio films becoming absolute products and not art. But there is still a lot of art. If you, you know, if you, if you keep looking, you will find it. And there's a lot of great classics in this era. I should also point out, I meant to say earlier, the fact that a straight guy didn't pick Star Wars as one of his picks makes me believe that there is a God. So thank you for doing that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) because I was really bracing myself for it. Uh, not that I don't like Star Wars. Anyway, my runner up for the eighties is, um, one of my, well, I'm not going to say that again. Okay. A movie that I have watched many (laughs) times since I was a teenager because I, I discovered Meryl Streep in the eighties and I grew to love her. And it's my favorite of all her films. It's out of Africa. Again, not a movie that's everyone's cup of tea. A lot of people find it boring. Um, and certainly in the present day, when you watch it, it's not critical enough of its, uh, sort of colonial setting to pass muster today, even though I could argue for ways in which it, it does. Um, but it's also, um, it's a movie that for me has a lot of adventure in it, the romance and this intelligent story of this woman basically um, being put to this challenge of uh, running a farm by herself in Africa, despite the fact that that's not what she really went out there for. And, and in case anyone's never seen it, it's about uh, the author Isaac Dennison, who wrote Babette's Feast and her real name was Karen Blixen. She went out to marry um, the Baron, the Baron Blixen in, uh, in Kenya. And he, they basically split up almost as soon as she gets there and, and she runs the farm on her own and falls in love with Robert Redford, who's playing a guy who in real life was British and bald, but who cares? It's the movies. Um, <laughs> and I have never found it too long. I find every sequence of it fascinating. I think it's incredible, um, on its aesthetics, the cinematography, the sound design, everything, the costumes, it's, it's just Marvelous, and it's a movie that I will happily rewatch many more times for the rest of my life. Well, you're gonna hate me. It's it's one that I really don't care for at all. Uh, you're I'm not a big. I'm in the minority in, in this on this one, so I'm not uh, too shocked. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm not super big into romance films to begin with. I need a, a, a very certain romance film to really get me on board, and and I just found that one to be a little too sappy for me. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Which I would sort of describe all of the 80s as that, though. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, I could see that. Yeah. Well, then what is your pick of the day? My number then? one film, as I said earlier, I love, I have loved political thrillers since I was a kid. I don't know why. Uh, maybe because like one of my secret fantasy lives was to be like a war correspondent, and it's not something that I ever pursued. And I think the greatest of them is Missing by Costa Gavras from 1982 with uh, Jack Lemmon, again, winning Best Actor at Cannes and Sissy Spacek. It's based on the true story of Charlie, they call him Horman in the film. I can't remember what the real name was, Um, but um, he and his wife lived in Chile. 
he was arrested, disappeared, never heard from again. And um, uh, this movie sort of explores what we know about what his wife and father went through in trying to find out what happened to him. And there is an implication that this film makes that the government had, the American government had a lot to do with the um, Pinochet coup in Chile, even though no names are named. And uh, I'm sure that it's all true. Um, uh, but the movie's uh, accusation is so explosive that actually at the time the government sued the movie studio and this movie was unavailable to rent or watch for many years um, after its initial hmm. theatrical release and its Oscar win for best adapted screenplay. I have watched this movie so many times that my friends are like, why are you watching that again? I'm like, I don't know. It just, <laughs> despite how sad and difficult it is, it also goes down so smooth. It's one of the most perfectly constructed movies I've ever seen. And um, it's just incredible. I, I can't get enough of it. Uh, that's one I'm not even familiar with. So you're you're introducing another new one to me. Great. Great. Also, I hope someone takes a drink every time I say I can't get enough of it. Yeah. <laughs> or it's your favorite movie yeah, of the decade. Yeah. yeah one yeah. of your all-time favorites. Yes. Yeah. I had no I, I didn't realize <laughs> that right. like I don't need to emphasize that, you know, considering the nature <laughs> of the subject of this episode. Anyway, your turn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not it's not the traditional top 10 or or 20 list, but it it, it sort of is in its own roundabout way, yeah. so I would expect a lot of these to be your all-time favorites. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of my all-time favorite. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so my runner-up for the 1980s is the Milos Forman uh, Amadeus, where it's based on the Peter Schaefer play. And for all, basically, we know it's almost entirely made mm-hmm. up at this point. But who really cares when the movie is this fun? I had first seen the stage production of Amadeus mm-hmm. uh, as a young boy. It was one of... Not the first theatrical show I saw, but one of the the first ones I'd seen that really sort of like blew my mind and and just like completely transported my world and, and opened myself up to to so many new opportunities. And when I finally ended up seeing this movie, I think I'd actually seen it on stage twice before I actually watched the movie. Mm-hmm. And this movie is even better than the stage production, and I love the stage production. Every scene, you've got this bombast. Everything is, is is so colorful and so much fun and loud and in your face and brash and it doesn't care. And that's just where all the fun sort of comes from. The, this delicious rivalry between Amadeus and Salieri and between Tom Hulse and F. Marie Abraham, the two of them butting heads while at the same time having this grudging respect for each other and to the point where... Amadeus doesn't even realize it's a rivalry as well. And then, of course, the final scene where Amadeus is is dictating his, his final opera on his deathbed and, and Salieri is like writing it all down and he's explaining all the music notes and you just it just comes alive to you and then suddenly the music actually starts playing. And it's just one of my favorite all-time moments in movie history. Interesting. Well, I'm going to break your heart now and get you back for uh, no. whatever. Uh, okay. I like this movie and I get... I get why it means a lot to a lot of people. It's just never hit me that it's never gotten me where I live. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's really good. I actually rewatched it a couple times in the last few years because I hadn't seen it in so long that I wanted to sort of remind myself how I felt about it. It's certainly one of the most beautiful movies you'll ever see. I mean, production quality wise, it's uh, outstanding. Um, I actually had the pleasure of seeing it um, not just in a theater, but like with a live orchestra playing the score, which was really incredible. Oh. So I saw it under like the best possible wow. circumstances. And I was still like, I don't know. It's not my favorite. Uh, 
But thematically, I mean, I love the theme of the story, which is basically, you know, coming to terms with your own mediocrity, accepting the fact that hard work and believing in yourself just isn't enough. Sometimes you just have to be touched by God and that it's not Mm -hmm. something that necessarily happens to people who deserve it. Um, Mm -hmm. And aside from how I feel about the movie, I think F. Murray Abraham's performance in this film is just one of the most brilliant performances ever put on film. His facial reactions to things, I mean, that that sort of... um, angry grin that he can do so beautifully i could just watch that for hours i think he's he's just magnificent it it's almost a shame that neither uh, abraham or hulse became the stars that i believe that they should have it's from true film. and they, yeah and they were up against uh, each other for oscars well you know Mer- f marie abraham is sort of like a middle-aged middle eastern man which is not something that hollywood even now is uh, has op- doors thrown open for and um mm-hmm. Hulse I believe just wanted to concentrate more of his career on his stage work so mm-hmm. yeah yeah but my uh, my my favorite from the decade is the 1989 Spike Lee joint Do the Right Thing oh, good choice. this is a movie that I I had first seen around when I was in college and it just sort of blew my mind of just being exposed to different opinions and and you watch it and you get so angry while you're watching and because a lot of it is just like a breakdown of communication. What happens when society isn't talking with each other and you're not realizing what you're doing to those around you? Yeah. And it just made me so angry. And then I revisited it last year after the, the murder of George Floyd. And I was like, was this movie literally made in the days after that? Because <laughs> nothing has changed yeah. in America, North America as a whole, the society, the treatment of black people, people of color, and everything that they were saying in 1989 is even more relevant today. Yeah. And it just blows my mind that Spike Lee was able to have that foresight of, hey, all the shit that we've been dealing with for hundreds of years, well, it's going to keep going unless we address it. Otherwise, you know, you're going to get a garbage can through your pizza window. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a really, really brilliant movie, and it's probably like my number three for this decade. So, um, so really, really good choice. I, I think it's really valuable in that you have someone who's from that world telling the story about this world, and so you have a lot of you know the serious topic being talked about in this really explosive manner. But you also have a lot of humor, and even though it has a really realistic tone, it also has this very expressive, almost expressionistic visual style in the way that you know the bright reds and the fact that like he makes Bed-Stuy like some, like a world out of a dream almost, you know, and that it it Mm -hmm. actually could be a beautiful place. um, You know, if it wasn't for the problems that, uh, that as you say, is from like this lack of communication between people and stuff. It's a balance that he gets so right in this film. And I feel like he's been trying so hard to get it just as right in all of his subsequent films. And some of them have come really close, but I don't think he's ever made anything to outdo this one. Yeah. I've recently been doing a bit of a deeper dive on some of his lesser talked about films. I don't want to say lesser known, but lesser talked about yeah. films. And and while he doesn't hit the same highs that he does and do the right thing, his ability to be so prescient with his themes mm-hmm. and his writing, I think, have always been consistently well executed. Yeah, he's so beautifully expressive, you know? He just doesn't he he and he he has people talk the way they talk. He doesn't try to make it something more polite or something that um he doesn't worry about things going down easily for audiences, you know. It's mm-hmm. really exciting. Now, and I don't know if anyone else is following Spike Lee on Twitter, but he is currently the the president of the Jury of Khan right. Film Festival that's going on right yep. now. And he is just absolutely loving his life. Yep. And I am all for <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, he's having a great time. I mean, Cannes is the dream. Mm-hmm. That's like on my bucket list would be to be on the jury at the Cannes Film Festival. So, oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. 
Absolutely. <laughs> Every movie lover's dream. <laughs> and, and Spike, for all of his cynicism, is probably, you know, one of the ultimate movie lovers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And knows what he's talking about, too. All right, so now we are on to the 1990s. All right. What is your runner-up film? 90, the 90s is a very happy uh, time in my life. I was, a, I was a happy young man going to the movies all the time. Um, and uh, my runner-up is one of my favorite movies. <sighs> Again, all right, let's just... <laughs> I need to have. I need to be attached to electrodes uh, every time I say that. Okay, um, a movie that I did not expect to love as much as I did, and it's uh, James El uh, James Elroy's Curtis Hansen's L.A. Confidential, based on the novel by James Elroy. This is one of the most exciting and exquisite examples of adaptation. This is a book that, to be adapted properly, would need a fifteen-day miniseries, and they managed to cut it down to the bare bones of the plot. It's still a richer plot than any other movie made in like 20 years before or since. And it's still really dense and fascinating and so perfectly constructed. Every character is fascinating. The way that it shows the gorgeous era of early fifties Hollywood, while also in like sort of deliciously indulging in the seedy underbelly of it at the same time. Um, the magnificent performance by Kim Basinger winning an Oscar in a very, very small role that I, I, I think just adds the perfect touch to the otherwise mostly male ensemble of these incredible actors like the late Kevin Spacey, which I think this is his best <laughs> performance. Um, Russell Crowe and uh, Guy Pierce and James Cromwell and all these people uh, and the soundtrack and everything. I, I, I think it's such an incredibly exciting movie. I, I absolutely adore this movie and was very close to being my runner up as mm -hmm. well. I'm so happy you're talking about this. It's fine. I was actually just reading an article last night about the rise of neo-noirs in the 90s and 2000s oh, yeah. and how the co-writer of LA Confidential a couple of years ago pitched to Warner's a sequel that would take place 20 years in the future. So in the 1970s and Russell Crowe and Guy Pierce would be returning along with Chadwick Boseman in it and Warner's turned them down. Oh, Interesting. Well, this movie yeah. was a tough one to sell. You know, when it came out, it bombed very badly. I didn't even see it. Like no one was interested in seeing it. And it's not until it became at the end of the, at the end of 1997, all the critics lists came out. Everyone had it as their number one, like every single person mm -hmm. and every critics groups gave, gave it best picture. And then Titanic, you know, obviously took the Oscar, but um, <laughs> that's when I was like, oh, I should go see this. And I grabbed my best friend. And then we went and saw it three times in a row. Like we were, and it's all wow. we could talk about for months, you know? All right, so what is the, the number one movie of the 90s for you? Uh, the number one movie is actually probably the most important movie in my life. So when I was 14, um, I went and saw Howard's End just because a magazine article said, it's hardly playing anywhere, go see it if, you're, if it's in your city because you're lucky. And I'm like, okay, I'm susceptible that way. And um, before that, you know, my favorite movies were like Dick Tracy and Batman. And after that, I be it sort of was the entranceway to my being interested in more than just American studio filmmaking, not that I shit on that, but, um, and it just changed my life as a moviegoer completely. And it is the movie that I have seen the most amount of times in my entire life and have never gotten sick of. And, um, so it's Howard's End by James Ivory. It's about, uh, Edwardian England where these, um, two sisters are at the center of this multi-character plot in which um, the author uh, E.M. Forster basically anticipates the social changes following World War One and World War II um, of uh, the the rise of the middle class, basically, and um, as embodied by these two middle class sisters, their encounters with a poor uh, cl clerk, and then uh, their encounters with a uh, 
rich billionaire. And Emma Thompson gives one of the most fascinating acting performances you'll ever see. She won every award for best actress that year. And I, you know, I've been her biggest, biggest fan ever since I've learned a lot as an actor from her performance in this movie, in the way she's so good at listening on camera and reacting to things. And, um, the way she just seems so naturally in the setting of it. And her character is so fascinating because she is this sort of, uh, she, she wants to, she wants to do right by everybody. And she sort of has faith in everybody that they'll do the right thing. And then she's sort of, um, she's blindsided, uh, and, and realizes how do I not give things away? Anyway, she, she, she comes to understand that things aren't the way she thought they would be just by her having the best possible intentions, basically. It's funny. So I, I learned about you and your work from your appearances on uh, Best Actress podcast. Oh, yes, Kyle. Yeah. And yes. And so my knowledge of Howard's End is Kyle incessantly making yes. fun of that movie by doing his <laughs> Howard's End <Yes>. joke. <laughs> oh, we've had a lot of conversations about that. Yeah. Yeah. He's not a huge fan. So that that is my, my reference point for that movie. <laughs> well, then you got to watch it. I mean, I doubt that you'll have the same reaction that I did because you're not 14 and it's not like your first, you know, classic movie. But, but um, uh, I mean, hopefully you like it. I think it's the best that Merchant Ivory ever did. And I really, I mean, I really have seen it more times than any other film in my life. And I've never, ever, ever gotten sick of it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, that's high praise. So for me, uh, my runner-up for the 1990s is, you know, it's funny. I talked about earlier how horror isn't really my, my genre of choice. Well, here I am picking <laughs> another horror-adjacent film, and that's The Silence of the Lambs, oh, yeah. the, the Jonathan Demme Best Picture winning film uh, about trying to find a serial killer and using a serial killer to find said killer. <laughs> and the first time I watched it, there's very few movies I think I've watched in my life where every beat and moment in, in scripted dialogue has an exact purpose. And this is one of the few movies where every single point of the movie serves the larger purpose of the story. There is not a single moment wasted. And I love that. And I think also what's so interesting is I don't think a straight man has ever directed a film that can understand what it's like from what I can know also as a straight man, what it's like to be a straight woman in a man's world yeah. as well. And, you know, there's several scenes where I, I think of, uh, there's a scene at the funeral of one of the victims and Jodie Foster walks into the room and literally all the men turn and look at the camera, all the cops. And it's just so uncomfortable to watch that moment. And you can just absolutely understand what she's feeling both as a woman, as a woman in her profession of being, uh, trying to be an investigator and, and everything that else that's going on subtext wise, this movie works so well. And of course the, the very thrilling final sequence as well. Uh, yeah, I would probably have this as like number three, uh, on mine. I mean, I, I have seen this movie almost as many times as I've seen Howard's end. I've watched it many, 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 many times. I think it's, uh, <laughs> as you say, absolutely perfect. And um, I recently, they played it. They did like a series of horror movies at Cinematheque a couple years ago and they played it and I hadn't seen it in a while. So a good friend of mine and I went and we were like, wow, it's still so good. It hasn't aged at all. Like it's so, it's just so perfect. And to have someone like Jonathan Demi who makes these usually much warmer, uh, funnier movies like Married to the Mob and something wild. And then he does a horror movie and you're like, how could this possibly be appropriate for him? But he is a very humane filmmaker and his focus is on, on Clarice's character sort of being like the one moral light in this very, very dark world. 
And um, I think, and, and also her relationship with Hannibal Lecter is sort of a love story under very perverse circumstances, which I find fascinating. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's uh, beyond an incredible movie. I think it's so good. But my, my favorite of this decade is probably the most recent film I've, I've watched on this entire list. And much like your excellent noir pick in LA Confidential, I'm going with another noir film in Devil in a Blue Dress, oh, yes. the Carl Franklin film that stars Denzel Washington. I had never heard of this movie mm-hmm. until last year where I was just looking up. I was like, what are some some good noir movies that I haven't seen yet? And this one popped up on a couple articles that I was reading. I was like, you know, yeah, I'll check this out. I like Denzel Washington. Mm-hmm. And I was just absolutely blown away by this film. The fact that it handles the politics of the era so delicately of a black man in a white man's world and how he needs to tread carefully. You know, he's this, he's this tough investigator, but then all of a sudden he's reminded very abruptly that he's in a white man's world and suddenly everything becomes way more difficult for him and he cannot use his brashness or his strength or anything like that. He needs to think his way out of a situation so that way he can get out alive. It also includes probably one of the greatest all-time breakout performances, and that's Don Cheadle in just an absolutely over-the-top berserk performance of just so much energy that I've, I've never seen him duplicate since then. And, and I'd love to see him to do something like that again. Yeah. I, uh, I didn't actually see this movie until a couple of years ago, but I do remember when it came out because it didn't get a lot of wide play, but there was a lot of acclaim and there was a lot of buzz about Don Cheadle getting an Oscar nomination for it as well. Um, which didn't end up happening, but you know, it did lead to the, the magnificent career that we know him for. And, um, it it's up there. It's for me, it's like close to LA confidential in that it's a similar world. It's a similar story. And it's also like this beautiful, I love, I love when you feel like you fall down a rabbit hole in a mystery story like this. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, that's definitely the case here. And, you know, Denzel at his best looking his best and um, Carl Franklin, the director, he's made so many great movies. You know, he did one true thing with Meryl Streep and he did, uh, out of time, I think it's called also with Denzel Washington. That's a really good movie. He's a, a really great director. So I like that movie a lot. I mm-hmm. think it's a really great choice. And it's a real shame that we did not get the franchise that they were hoping that this would spawn because they, they did leave the the movie a little open-ended to set up more yes. uh, stories with this easy Rollins character. Yeah, Cause it's based on like a series and of books. Denzel really wanted to do it yeah. and they just couldn't. All right, so now we're getting closer to the end of the episode. Oh, yeah. We're now in the 2000s. So what is your runner-up for that? Decade? Well, you know, my runner-up and first could are interchangeable uh, in this year. But uh, for the sake of argument, I will say that my runner-up, they're both from the same year as well. My runner-up is uh, my favorite movie by Pedro Almodovar, who's one of my all-time favorite filmmakers, certainly my probably my favorite living filmmaker. Um, uh, and his 2002 film, Talk to Her, for which he won a Best Original Screenplay Oscar, um, this is certainly his most acclaimed film. I think it was actually the most acclaimed film of its year. And, um, and is this really fascinating story about the friendship between these two men. One of them is a, um, a caretaker at a home for coma patients. The other one is, uh, meets him because he's there visiting his girlfriend who's in a coma. And, um, it basically goes on from there. It's a, it's just, it's a, it's about obsession, but it's also about passion. It's deeply problematic. Uh, it certainly would be seen so now in that, um, one of the characters is a rapist and he's treated like a very sympathetic human being without his activity being in any way, um, exonerated or, or excused. 
And then it's also a movie about art. You know, there's, there's the inclusion of ballet and um, silent cinema, the wonderful sequence of the tiny man climbing into the giant vagina and, um, Mm -hmm. and music and so many other things. And I I think it's, it's just pure poetry. And uh, I've never, again, watched it many, many times. I love anything Almodovar, even when he's not good, but I think this is him at his uh, finest. Almodovar is also a bit of a blind spot for me. I've only seen uh, All About My Brother. I mean, that's another favorite. I've only seen All About My Brother and Pain and Glory. Pain and Glory is really good too. That's his best in a long time. I'm kind of excited that you haven't seen more. I mean, you're you're in for a wonderful. I mean, he's a he's another one where he loves to reference movies um, in his own really mm-hmm. wonderfully, beautifully expressive way. And he can combine genres like nobody's business. You know, he can make a movie that has some really really crazy, outrageous comedy and still break your heart, and also make it a thriller. You know, like he his command mm-hmm. of uh, story structure is really quite impressive. His movies are always told in these very, very small arcs. So the first time you watch them, you don't always know where you are in the movie. And some of the cases they're over and I'm like, oh, are we there? You know, like I was just, I was just watching, like I was just paying attention, you know? Um, And I I think, Mm -hmm. I think he's just marvelous. Well, what is your number one for the number one is a movie that I think is just incredible. Um, I never, again, didn't expect it to be so great. And that's um, Far From Heaven by Todd Haynes. When I first read that he was making a film that was a tribute to Douglas Sirk, I thought, oh, God, this is going to be terrible, even though I like Todd Haynes. But, um, you know, tribute movies are always very gimmicky to me, movies that sort of take place in the world of a different kind of movie. Um, But what he actually does in this film is retell um, Douglas Sirk's All That Heaven Allows, which would have been like my number three for the 50s. Um, in this newer story set in the same period, using the stylistics of a Douglas Sirk film, to talk about um, American society, community thinking, and um, progress as well in the story of Julianne Moore as a Connecticut housewife who basically lives to serve her husband. She finds out that he's been stepping out on her with men in in the big city. And then she develops a friendship with her black gardener, played by Dennis Haysbert, that sort of sets the neighborhood on its ear. And it's a movie that has so many wonderfully perfect little moments you know um that part where uh, he grabs her arm and she just says you're so beautiful or uh when, at the end when when she tells him we could go somewhere else and no one would know us there and you know i think this is julianne's finest moment as an actress i love nicole so much but i wish julianne had won the oscar for best actress for this film i think it's incredible mm-hmm. so funny story about that <laughs> film is I had picked it up at, I think, like an HMV or something back when they would do like their four movies for $20 sales and had it sitting on my shelf for years and years and years and years and years. And I never ended up watching it. And I was downsizing my movie collection and ended up getting rid of it. I've never actually oh, seen it. I mean, yeah, yeah you got it. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. And it, uh, the, the thing that made me laugh about it, I watched it with my mom once and my mom grew up in the era of the movies that it is emulating. So she didn't actually take mm-hmm. it in any way. Ironically, she actually responded to it as a serious movie because- you know, she, as a kid, she watched things like written on the wind and those were, um, movies to her, you know, she didn't see it on, she didn't see the extra layer, which I thought was really interesting. All right. Well, my runner up for the two thousands is my favorite Christopher Nolan movie, the prestige. I, I love a good mystery film and it's about two dueling magicians played by Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman. And I love this Victorian era setting and the twists and turns it takes and how after you watch it, when you rewatch it and you know how it all ends up, the movie is laid out for you, but 
just like a really good magic trick, you don't see it. You don't notice it until it's too late. And I think this movie does that so well. Well, I guess it was too much to hope that we could avoid both Star Wars and Christopher Nolan. So I'll say that I'm grateful for the one <laughs> out of two. But um, I, I was never huge on this movie. I like it, but uh, it's not a favorite of mine. Um, something about the story didn't quite uh, light a match for me. But um, it is. It, I, I totally get what you're talking about. And it definitely has its... I mean, it's a really beautiful film. I actually liked The Illusionist more, which came out the same year with Edward oh. Norton. Yeah. Well, if you if you weren't overly fond of that pick, you're probably not going to be overly fond of my next pick as well. And it is my favorite Tarantino film, and that is Inglorious Bastards. Oh. I like how uh, history altering he has become in recent mm-hmm. years in this idea of what would happen if you have an all Jewish troop that decides to go kill Hitler and they actually are able to do it. Yeah. And it's bloody and gory and disgusting and a ton of fun. And I love the fact that Christoph Waltz speaks four different languages and does it all magnificently Mm -hmm. throughout the film. One of the best villain performances I've ever seen. And just the whole nature of of it's done in chapters where it feels so novel-esque. Like, I really adore this movie, and and it is my favorite Tarantino, and I am a big fan of Tarantino. So if you you do want to uh, tisk tisk me a little bit for this pick, I I will. No, not at all. I actually, I I never think I like Tarantino because I never identify with his like most vocal fans. Um, But every time I sit down to one of his movies, I'm always like, oh, I actually really love that. And for some reason, I miss the boat on Inglorious (laughs) Bastards. It's not my favorite of his. Um, I like, as in terms of history revisionism, I found Django Unchained much more captivating. Um, Mm -hmm. and I don't know why, because on paper, Inglorious Bastards, that's everything about it that, uh, that I should love. And for some reason, it just didn't light a fire inside of me, but you know, uh, whatever. I, I still think it's a, it's a very good choice. And, and I, I do, I do like him a lot. Well, we are at our last decade, and so I am very excited to hear what your last two okay. picks are. Well, my runner-up is the, I believe, 2014, I, I have notes in front of me, and yet I'm still asking, 2016 film, Tony Erdmann by Marin Ada, a German filmmaker who's, I think, only made like three or four features. Uh, when this played at the Cannes Film Festival, every single critic, um, especially at The Guardian, because I was listening to their podcast, they would not stop raving about this movie. It didn't end up winning any of the awards. Most of the movies that did win awards <laughs> were shat on. And all the critics agreed that Tony Erdman was the best film out of the festival. So I couldn't wait to see it. It came to TIFF. I went to see it with my friend Dave. Uh, my friend Dave is my best movie friend. He never, I mean, he's a, he's as grumpy as I am, and he could not stop laughing for the whole two hours and 40 minutes of this entire movie. Just, we were both <laughs> giggling the entire time. This movie is so funny. Um, it is about a, uh, a, um, a young German woman who lives and works in Bucharest. She's never had a good relationship with her dad. He comes to visit her. She's trying to be all professional. Um, you know, building the new economic union with her company. And he just loves playing practical jokes and undercutting her. And she's resisting his trying to basically remind her of her, of her funner self. And that's just the whole movie. It's, it, and it's one brilliant setup after another of these crazy circumstances that, that these two find themselves in that get crazier and crazier. There's like a naked party scene and there's like, um, there's that, giant Bulgarian costume that he wears at the end. I mean, I sound like I'm insane describing this movie, but it just, it, 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 it has everything under control and keeps everything at a perfect pitch the entire time. I never, there's never a downtime for the, for me in this movie. It's just two hours and 40 minutes straight of brilliance. 
<laughs> this was one that I was curious about the year that it came out, but I ended up passing on it and I haven't gone back to it mostly because of the, the runtime, but it is one that I, I'm, I'm curious mm-hmm. about, but I don't know if I'll ever see. Oh, I hope you do. It. I, it was definitely my number one film of the year. Uh, it lost the Oscar to the salesman by Asghar Farhadi, which I also really liked. Um, uh, but, uh, I just, I, it's a great movie. All right. Well, then what is your favorite from right. the decade? Then? Well, I gave a clue about it because uh, speaking of Asghar Farhadi, he won the uh, Best Foreign Language Film Oscar the first time in 2011 for A Separation, which is my favorite movie of this decade. I think it's incredible. He, he um, has his roots in theater and I am, uh, as an actor, a theater animal. And maybe that's also why I love this movie because he focuses on interactions between characters and his stories uh, revolve around secrets um, but he does it in this really compelling way that does feel cinematic. Um, and in this case, it's um, a story involving four characters, basically two couples. Uh, and at the heart of it is this uh, middle-class couple in Tehran who they want to separate, uh, but he, or she wants to separate. She wants to go live abroad. He wants to stay home and it's causing a real problem. He hires um, uh, a lower middle-class woman or a, I suppose working-class woman to um, take care of his father and then things go very wrong, and that it ends up involving her very conservative, um, unemployed husband. And um, the interactions are fascinating. I find this movie very deeply, deeply moving. His movies, I always find actually very moving. And I've liked everything he's done. I liked The Past, and I liked Nobody Knows with Penelope Cruz. I think he's incredible. So, um, But I think this movie is so far the finest of anything of his that I've seen. I am a big fan of this, and when my wife listens to this, she's going to be very happy that you picked this as well because she adores oh, this film too. We're both big Asgard for yeah. fans. So yeah, I, I love this movie. It's it's so subtle and quiet and intimate, and and you don't know what kind of is going to hit you over the head until that last final heartbreaking scene where they, they go to find out whether or not they where the daughter wants to yeah. live with and, and where they want to go with that, and it just breaks your heart and it doesn't give you the resolution (laughs) you want. I'm not going to really spoil the ending here, but what you're hoping for, it doesn't give it to you. And for hotties, all the better for Yeah, His endings are, I always find really fascinating. The ending of the movie, the past with the, uh, the tear running down the comatose patient's um, face that blew my mind. I I haven't stopped thinking about it since I think he's just amazing. Mm -hmm. I, I get excited every time I know he's making something new. Yes, and, and I believe he actually has something coming out this year as well, yes. so very excited. Yeah, and that. I recently made uh, a group of people watch Nobody Knows, um, and uh, they all really liked it, which I'm glad, because it's, it's not even his best, but I still think it's really good. Yeah, I do need to catch up with that one. I imagine that's probably a bit more of an accessible one due to the fact that it's uh, Penelope Cruz and Javier Bardem, Yes, right? uh, although it is in Spanish, and um, it's mm-hmm. on Netflix, so it's definitely accessible. All right, so my runner-up pick is going to be the uh, David Fincher-directed Social mm-hmm. Network, which is the Facebook movie, <laughs> which <laughs> I totally remember when it was coming out how dismissive everyone was about the Facebook movie being made. And when I finally watched it in theaters, it could not be farther from the truth. The fact that this is more a story about friendship and business and how they don't always intertwine mm-hmm. together uh, plus, it might have one of the finest scripts of all time written by Aaron Sorkin, just sizzling that opening sequence where it's um, it's it's Jesse Eisenberg and, and Rooney Mara in a bar, and they're just going back and forth, which I believe it was something like 20 or 30 pages of dialogue, but it ends up being like less than a 10-minute scene just because of how quickly they're talking, 
just blows my mind every time I watch it. And and I mentioned earlier in M talking about in the Hall of the Mountain King, the regatta scene when they have that set to that. Beautiful, just beautiful for me. Well, I guess it was too much to hope that we could avoid Star Wars and Christopher Nolan and David Fincher, but there we are. <laughs> uh, no, this is actually, this is probably my favorite of his films up there with the game. I love David Fincher when I love him. Uh, and the rest of the time, I don't really care. I'm not one of those people who, uh, who, who, who's thrills at everything he does. I know a lot of guys love Zodiac. I find that movie really boring. Um, and I think fight club is really, uh, entertaining and really, really unimportant. Um, the social network is really, really good. It is, uh, like you said, the script is amazing. There's always a period of time in the year where like, uh, you're getting to September, October and nothing has really stood out. And you're like, well, I guess this isn't going to be a great year. And then there's always the first movie of award season that sort of switches the plot for you and makes you really excited. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling that way about this movie when I saw it. I'm like, oh, there are going to be great movies this year, you know? And it was, uh, from the opening scene, I remember being really, there's an energy that that movie ramps up immediately and it never lets go of. Um, it is mm-hmm. really well and done. And, and like you said, it's also about um, American capitalism as well and and the American dream and the fact that people want to believe in this, this possibility of us all to achieve so much, but we don't want anyone else to do it. If anyone else does it, we have to tear it down, but we want to be able to have access to it. And, and while I think it has Jesse Eisenberg's finest acting performance to date, I think more the, the supporting cast is what really makes this movie absolutely sing with, with Andrew Garfield and Justin yeah. Timberlake putting in the best work of his life and, and Rooney Mara and uh, he who should not be named <laughs> again, doing the late two roles um, at once. Ar- what's his name? Army Hammer. I forgot his name. That's Army how, Hammer, that's how yes. uh, good yeah, I am. So at sad that he people. died. Yeah. I mean, and I didn't know that he wasn't <laughs> twins when I watched that movie. It's pulled off so well technically, but also his performance as well. It's mm-hmm. incredible. He's, and he was never that interesting yeah. ever again. All right. And then my number one, one, which you might also give me a bit of, a bit of crap for being a basic well, straight boy. Because it makes, is, it makes uh, you laugh. So I have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, oh. which I think is the the pinnacle of of his filmography, the pinnacle of Philip Seymour Hoffman, the pinnacle of Joaquin Phoenix, and just the two of them going toe to toe in some of the greatest acting performances I've ever seen, especially the very first auditing scene that they do mm-hmm. on the boat. The two of them just very intense close up shots held for very long, and and letting them just do what they do best in. I love this. And as someone that went to acting school, so much of this movie (laughs) reminds me of the different exercises that you do in acting school. And so I just love it. Um, Yeah, no, I I, no no shame at all. I really love this movie. I really love Paul Thomas Anderson a lot. And I, um, I grow to love him more and more as time goes on. If I was going to pick a favorite from this uh, decade, I would have a hard time choosing between this and Phantom Thread because I really love that film a lot as well. Oh, that's my second yeah. favorite. Um, and that was definitely my favorite movie of its year. The Master, I don't remember if it was like my number one that year, but it was certainly in the top five. Uh, and I think it's another movie that grabs me immediately from the beginning. It's so elegant, but also moody and disturbing. You know, the opening shots of, I think you like opening shots of the sea and um, mm-hmm. the way the sequences move, you know, the peri- that John Steinbeck period where he's like running through the patch of lettuce or whatever and then and then when and where he ends up i think it's also amy adams's finest moment i think that of all the oscar nominations she's received this is the one that she was most robbed for um and that the one that she definitely should have won but (laughs) anne hathaway got beaten up and was crying so i guess she deserved to win (laughs) 
uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think the master, I think that's is a really, really, um, I, I think you're back on top um, in terms of my opinion of you uh, with this choice. I think you did really well. Oh, yeah. phew. Okay, good. And I am all here for the Les Mis shade <laughs> as well. I actually like that movie more than most people did, but I didn't understand why anyone would need an Oscar for anything they did in that film. But that's uh, just me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that that movie just did absolutely nothing yeah, for me yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well that was a ton of fun i really enjoyed going over that you you introduced a whole bunch of movies that i've not seen some i have even I'm heard glad. of so i'm gonna have to go back and do a ton of homework well now. it was absolutely an absolute pleasure thank you very much for having me on i had a really good time and uh as i predicted i blathered on for too long and your episode is far too long well, that's all right. It's quality okay. content. Bill, I want to know where can listeners find more of you and your work? Oh, thank you. Um, my blog at myoldaddiction.com. Uh, the plan is to have a new movie review every day. I've kept it up for, as of today, 1,075 days. Um, wow. Let's see how long I can keep that going. And then you can find me on Instagram at Bill Antonyu. Bill is with one L. Um, and, uh, I'm not on Twitter except through my podcast. I have a, pod- a comedy podcast called bad gay movies where me and two very good friends go through very bad gay movies every three weeks. And, uh, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter as well. You are an excellent follow on Instagram. I love how <laughs> this past year you've been doing all the polls of all the different Oscar winners for the different yeah. categories. It's been a ton of fun doing that. A uh, good. It's uh, it's how I'm passing the time in lockdown and finding out how many bad opinions some people have of certain <laughs> things. I mean, you don't want Mary Poppins to win Best Visual Effects. What do you think is better? Mm-hmm. I don't know. And I don't. I don't and I do it. enjoy how every once in a while you have to reiterate uh, that it's about the actual award that's being won for that specific category, not your overall thoughts on the movie. Well, there's a point where like no one's voting for Braveheart to win best makeup. And I'm like, guys, the makeup department does not deserve to be punished because you found out later that Mel Gibson's an asshole. That's not how this works. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, once again, thank you so much. And for everyone else, you can follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. Uh, and let me know what your favorite movies of the decades are. Let us know if we had any good picks or bad picks. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all the episodes there as well. And thank you for checking us out.